Hey everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. The debt ceiling. Are you ready for it? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Peter Bookvar, Chief Investment Officer at Bleakley Financial Group and editor of The Book Report. Hi, Peter. Hi, Maggie. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. We always love to see you. Um, I feel, kind of feel like we're all in, in wait-and-see mode. We have Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy scheduled to meet in 90 minutes with President Biden to see if they can get a deal on raising the U.S. debt ceiling and avoiding default. And the prevailing wisdom seems to be, at least in the market, seems to be that there, there will be a deal, even if it's ugly and drawn out and at the 11th hour, they'll get one done. Is that the outcome? Is that what your sense that that's what the market's betting on? And is that wise? I mean, there will be a deal, just like there is always a deal. Uh, but I, I think there, there are sort of two different things that are um, going on that just investors generally have to prepare for. One is sort of logistics in the sense of, if I own a T-bill that is maturing call between June 1st and June 15th, so-called you know X date range, and I need access to that cash on call it June 5th because I'm closing on a house June 6th, you know, if there's a day or two of disruption and I can't get my cash for that closing, then I have a problem. I don't expect, first of all, I expect a deal. Uh, you know, you're talking about two sides that are talking top, but at the end of the day, no one wants to preside over uh, not making an interest payment on a particular day. But let's just say we go there. I don't expect that to last more than a day or two. Yeah. So um, it's this is all going to be bluster as it always is, and then we'll wait a year or two and have this happen all over again. Stretching this out though, I think it's it's sort of unveiling you know, a bigger challenge for the US government and possibly markets in that it's exposing obviously how much debt we have, not that we need this to expose it, you can go to a debt clock and, and see it, but Looking at the U.S. budget deficit as a percent of GDP, right now we're at levels that usually coincides with the um, trough of a recession rather than a level that we're on the cusp of one at 7.3%. And also we have the dynamics of the Fed is selling treasuries essentially through QT. Uh, banks are no longer loading up. Foreigner central banks have been net sellers, and at the same time to finance that budget deficit, which is 7.3% as a percent of GDP as at the end of April, uh, we have a lot of supply. And once that debt ceiling gets raised, you're going to have a flood of supply in a very confined period of time as the Treasury refills their general accounts. I've seen estimates up to $500 billion within a month or two and north of a trillion within the next, you know, following six to 12 months. And just for perspective, the TGA is down to about 90 billion is each day and week that, that progresses from here. 
that'll get whittled down to zero. So what this all means in the short term is we're going to have the Treasury issue a lot of bonds uh, over the coming couple of months that will suck money out of the private sector because that's where the, the, the financing comes from. And maybe that means that it gets diverted from other places like the stock market, we'll have to see. Uh, mm. Again, past this, it's going to matter for what does the U.S. dollar do and can the U.S. government continue to finance themselves at current levels or do we need higher rates in order for them to do so? Yeah, which brings up a really, really interesting critical point because – we have the market anticipating that rates are going to go lower, right? I mean, that's what the forecast is. Well, I, I think the short end, uh, the market definitely pricing in rate cuts uh, after um, probably the Fed being done, even though they're certainly teasing us with maybe one more or even a few James Bullard, two more rate hikes. Uh, now, we've reduced a bit of those odds and that we're only pricing in now maybe one hike by the end of this year, but a bunch next year. But the long end, you know, like I, I have, I, 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 I do my own work, and but I listen to some other people, and I'm, I'm quite amazed at the confidence that some people have on where the 10-year yield's gonna go. And that is because they're only looking at U.S. growth and inflation and saying, inflation's slowing down, growth, we're going to recession, therefore you have to buy the 10-year yields are going down. And I just wish it was, that easy of an analysis. I mean, look, today, the 10-year yield is closing at 372. And in my opinion, the economic growth story is only deteriorating. Mm. So I see slower growth. I see uh, a tightening credit situation and yields have gone up. So what does that tell you about the state of things? I can argue that the 10-year goes to 3% or even below if we're just looking at growth and inflation. But I can argue that the 10-year goes to 4.5% and not for good reason. And I think we're getting a little bit of a taste of it over the past couple of weeks with this rise in the 10-year. And that we're bigger picture, and maybe I'm speaking a little hyperbolic here, sorry, but you know, we're unwinding the greatest financial bubble in the history of bubbles, and that's in sovereign bonds. So I, I just discount when some people have this very confident call where the 10-year yield goes. Uh, I can be confident of where the short end goes because that's tied to Fed policy. But uh, if we, we can, in the next three months, wake up and the Japanese widen yield curve control, uh, the ECB, as they further tighten and do QT, they loosen control of their bond market. The Bank of England is outright selling gilts, and maybe they run into an issue again. And the exploding debts and deficits in the US, uh, the 10 year can easily go above four, and not for good reason. So that's very much the wild card is the long end. Short end, yes, we can argue that rates will go down into next year. But, um, and then the whole conversation related to that is how much will they go down if, if we do, do go into recession and how much will the Fed be able to respond to that? That is such an important point that you just made. I just want to sort of underscore, underscore, put a note and a pin in that. Um, because you don't hear a lot of people talking about that. And it's, uh, except our really smart viewers, because uh, right before you started, David Kelly asked, hello, Peter, will there be ample buyers of treasury once the debt limit is raised? So let me ask you, and, and I think you laid out a great argument of that, that that's not clear unless they 
unless the rates go up, the yield goes up to attract those buyers. Do you think it's because there's just so much supply coming on? Or is this a bigger picture of just less demand for U.S. Treasuries moving forward? Is it the glut or is it the overall attractiveness of U.S. Treasuries? Well, it, it's definitely a glut for sure. Uh, and then can that glut be absorbed? And you know, it's going to be absorbed, but it's just a matter of what price. But losing the Fed as a buyer is a big deal. Losing foreign central banks as a buyer is a big deal. Losing the banks is a big deal. But on the other hand, insurance companies, pension funds are seeing yields they haven't seen in years. And we know money is flooding into money markets. Now, money markets, of course, are buying the short end. They're not buying the long end. Mm. Uh, but in terms of looking at the long end, are, are there enough buyers to offset? And it's very unclear at what the clearing price is for that supply to get absorbed. And that's why I, I push back on people that have so much confidence of where the 10-year yield goes. I, 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 think, I think that it's just much more uh, uncertain, um, as I stated. No, absolutely. Uh, so the, the, you mentioned before just the amount of, of debt that we're looking at heading into recession, not coming out. And I'm assuming a lot of that is related to the massive pandemic, you know, um, fiscal pandemic payouts and support. Isn't everyone in the same boat? I mean, the U.S. is facing this, but isn't everyone kind of facing it because of what happened with the pandemic? Oh, for sure. But the U.S. government over two years spent $5 trillion, which at the time was, what, a quarter of GDP. The Europeans did not. Uh, now, the Europeans have, have created a sort of a slush fund, I, I would call it, between loans and grants. But as a percent of the Euro, Eurozone uh, or even EU GDP was a fraction, it, it was really the U.S. government that went hog wild with, uh, with, with the spending relative to the size of our economy. I mean, we can just look back in 2020 and, you know, those collecting initial claims, about half the people that were collecting them were making more on unemployment than they were previously on their jobs. So our, our, our GDP has is, is gone somewhat exponential here relative to, well, I should say our, D, our debt relative to GDP has got, gotten definitely exponential here, it seems. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. So there, I, I think that um, I, we had Jared Dillian on. Some people are talking about in the chat, so I want to bring it up. We had him on, and, and I think he was touching on something similar, but just sort of saying, listen, the 10-year yield could go to 10%. I mean, he just threw that out there. but um, is there is there you, you said you don't know what the clearing price for that treasury supply to be absorbed is, but is there a range you're you're looking at or, or are we really kind of in uncharted territory? I mean, right now it's I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll take the easy way out and I'll say three and a half to four and a half. But I, I think what's most important here is if we break above four percent in the tenure, it's not for good reason. Mm. It's not because the u s. economy is is growing in size again to its normalized rate of call it two to three percent. 
and everything is fine. It's, it's going to be because of the things that we talked about, but also maybe because inflation remains really sticky. You know, I, I, I was talking about inflation in April, May 2020, when the supermarket shelves were empty. Mm-hmm. But So I, I would consider myself more hawkish when it comes to inflation. But you know, I acknowledge that inflation is moderating, and it will continue to through the end of the year. But when you go like this, you usually come down like this. The question is, is when you get to the other side, where does it settle out in? And I just don't believe the analysis that I've done that inflation is going to settle out at 1% to 2% again. And that's going to be the sustainable rate of inflation for the next couple of years. I firmly believe it's going to be something more than like 3 to 4 Well, in a 3 to 4 new world inflationary environment, while it's below where it is now, and certainly well below the 9%-ish level that we saw last summer, you know, that, that's a new interest rate regime. That's a new inflationary regime that we haven't seen in a while that um, what, what tenure yield should we put on that? I would say higher than we are today. So that's my worry is that we get a rise in long rates and not for good reason. Yeah, I, I want to ask I want to ask about the implications of that inflation in a moment. I just want to I want to zip up the debt the debt ceiling part of this discussion because so that's an that's something beyond the sort of short-term headlines that everyone's looking at. That's a really important thing to watch and part of the market. Wondering what you're if you're also thinking about the dollar. My colleague Andreas tackled this some of these short-term issues around the debt ceiling in his latest Deno signals uh, that dropped on the platform. Let's have a listen to a clip from that, and then we'll talk on the other side. I think the general narrative out there right now is that stress related to U.S. funding, stress related to Treasury markets, will lead to a sell-off in the U.S. dollar as a consequence of it. But if we look at the empirical evidence around partial shutdowns uh, over the past few decades, we actually reach the exact opposite conclusion. So let's have a look at the um, dollar developments around the implementation of partial shutdowns in history. There is a tendency for the dollar to drop a bit ahead of the partial shutdown implementation. But as you can see from uh, the chart here, in none of the four last um, shutdowns, the dollar has traded at a weaker level 100 days after the implementation of the partial shutdown. So it's essentially a 100% hit ratio, at least if we look at the last uh, four or five instances here, to be long the US dollar from the exact timing of the partial shutdown, which is in very sharp contrast to the overall narrative out there and which is in sharp contrast to the market positioning uh, because currently we see a lot of um, active players in the market being short the US dollar uh, in speculative positioning out there. So this could be a a true game changer once we get to the point where the dollar trend reverses, uh, if I'm right on my empirical analysis here of what happens in dollar markets once we reach the point where a partial shutdown is very likely. Um, and and obviously Andreas is is talking about what happens if they have to do a shutdown if the if things get messier than we're anticipating. But I love the fact that he points out that the market is sort of very much expecting one thing. Um, it's worth it's worth thinking about that full interview. By the way, is available on our platform. If you're not a member, you can scan the QR code uh, so that you can join and get access to all of the great material, including all the Steno signals, which drop drop weekly. Um, so, Peter, how are you thinking about this? Because, you know, as Andreas said, like everyone's kind of betting one way on the dollar. 
if there's a deal, that risk goes away. But how are you seeing this in the short term play out around the currency? When I look back on the dollar, and he can be right in the short term about how it sort of responds to a disruption, but a disruption is going to be, like I said, just a matter of days. If you look back at the dollar, what's been driving the dollar since 2021, right before it sort of took off? And, and, and I'm going to really distinguish here and differentiate the dollar against different currencies because there's no such thing as king dollar. The it's dollar, dollar, right, exactly. Against, it's always the cross. Weston used to say dollar strong against some things and really trades like crap against others. So what drove the dollar rally and the dollar, let's look, okay, let's start by saying, looking at the dollar index. The euro yen heavy DXY, where those two currencies make up about almost two thirds of, of that index. It was June 2021 when, at the FOMC meeting press conference, Jay Powell said, We're finally thinking about tapering QE. That was the match that lit the fire under the dollar. And the dollar took off right after that meeting and topped out at the end of October 2022, just as the Fed was ending its fourth meeting in a row of 75 basis point rate increases. So the US dollar against the yen, the euro, the British pound was really just a Fed-driven rally. The Fed was more aggressive than other central banks. But once the market sniffed out, the Fed was about to slow down the pace of the rate increases, that ended the dollar rally. Well, what does that say about the dollar? Okay, so let, let's, let's talk about now. Two of the largest trading partners of the U.S. economy is Mexico and Canada. Last week, the Mexican peso rose to its highest level against the U.S. dollar since 2016. The Canadian dollar, which is somewhat of a commodity currency and with oil prices down close to 70, well, in the face of that decline in oil prices, the Canadian dollar has been trading in a range at 135. It's really no different than where it was over the last bunch of years. So there's really no dollar strength against the Canadian dollar. Uh, you look at the dollar against some of the Asian currencies. Well, I'm going to put aside the yuan because the yuan is, is trading really off um, the reopening excitement. And then now there's some reopening reality when it comes to China. But the Singapore dollar is, is near the higher end of its range. So I don't really see king dollar. Yeah, maybe against there'll be a trade against the euro and the pound and, and maybe against the yen. But the yen is being driven by what the BOJ is doing mm. right now, not what the Fed is doing. And now the Fed is just about done raising interest rates and tying back to that budget deficit as a percent of GDP. And if you go back 40 years, there is a relationship between the dollar and that, that deficit as a percent of GDP. Um, outside of a trade, I, I don't see the upside argument here for the dollar. Yeah. And I just want to be clear, Andreas, I think, is being very, because he does these weekly, very specific to the week and the risks, you know, that may result from the debt ceiling. You're talking about right. a little Short bit term, of, a, yeah. yeah, a little bit of a, a longer term thing, which is what the market, it seems like, is also anticipating. Um, so if we are looking at, as you say, the potential where we may see the 10-year uh, rate higher than expected because you've got you've got to to draw demand for treasuries. What are the implications for the real economy if we have a 10-year sitting at 4%? Well, th this is a potential problem, obviously, just from the natural 
you know, belief that, you know, higher rates is, it will be a squeeze on, on, on borrowers. But, you know, taking this one step further, let's just say the U.S. economy does go into a recession and the Fed is seeing the, the dip in inflation and thinking, okay, well, inflation's now got a three-handle, maybe by year-end it's got a two-handle, that they can start cutting interest rates. Well, maybe, well, what, what does that do to the U.S. dollar if the Fed starts cutting? You know, I just argued that the sole reason for the dollar rally was the aggressive tightening of the Fed. Well, where do I think the dollar is going to go if the, if the Fed starts to cut? I would argue lower. And if the Fed starts getting aggressive with their cuts and the dollar continues to weaken, oil goes above 100, well, the 10-year yield can go even well above 4% in a slowing economy. That would be a really difficult situation. So I'm not saying that that happens. I'm just saying that these are some realistic outcomes mm. that tells me this has, this, there's more chapters to this book on, on where rates go. Because like I said earlier, we're unwinding an epic bubble in sovereign bonds where negative rates were you know, the definition of that. And just to think that, okay, um, we, we've ripped the Band-Aid off, yields are higher, and, and they're just, we're just going to go back to sort of pre-bubble trading and rates will stay low. I don't know. I, I'm not so confident in that. So like I said earlier, yields on the long end can go higher for wrong reasons and would sort of exaggerate the economic impact and make the Fed's job really difficult when they want to cut short-term interest rates in response to uh, a weak economy. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Does that put QE back on the table? So if the economy is weakening and the markets, the bond market is working against the Fed, they're going to have to do something other than cut rates, right? Right. Well, that, that, is, the, that is a great question because that then begs, that situation begs that exact question is, let's just say ten, the 10 year yield went up for those bad reasons and the Fed was forced to do what they can to cap that. Well, would that be successful? Maybe, maybe not. After QE1 and QE2 was implemented in an effort to suppress long-term interest rates, long-term interest rates went up instead because the market said, you know, basically push back against the Fed and say, you guys are trying to reflate. I'm going to sell off my long-term treasuries. Right. Right. Now, this is why this is, this is why people talk about yield curve control, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that would be part of the conversation. But I think what we've learned from certainly the Japanese and, and most recently with the Reserve Bank of Australia, that yield curve control is an extraordinarily dangerous game. Because, yeah, it's easy to get in, but boy, is it really difficult to get out of. And the market's going to push you until you, they're always going to test your resolve. So you're going to have no to doubt about it. throw and a lot of ammunition at that line in the sand that you drew. Right. So, yeah, it's easy on paper to say, yeah, yield curve control. But in, in practice, it's going to be really difficult. And uh, so th these are some really difficult choices and some situations that we're sort of um, gaming out here. And I think it's important to talk about it because these aren't low probability situations. I, I would say that these are potential outcomes. Yeah. So um, some of the questions I think we've answered as we went along, Cosmos asking, why would the banks take on more U.S. bonds if they're underwater with them already? You're sort of saying the banks would be out of that. That's part of the problem, yeah, yeah, no. that you don't have them as a buyer this time around. 
Correct. They, they loaded up on this paper the last couple of years. And if anything, um, they're going to let they're going to try to shrink this part of their balance sheet. Hope, they're hoping they can do that through uh, you know, maturities rather than being a forced seller. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the, the, the era of banks loading up. But, you know, banks don't necessarily have to because one of the reasons why banks loaded up on treasuries and agency bonds is because they got flooded with deposits. They got flooded with deposits because of all the QE the Fed was doing. Mm-hmm. Well, now deposits are shrinking uh, and they're shrinking every single week. So there's less pressure on banks to deploy these deposits. Now, the, the, the loan to deposit ratio for the U.S. banking system is about 60 percent. The historical level is about 70. So there, 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 there is some um, room there and it'll, that, room, that, that, that ratio will, will compress relative to its long-term average, the more deposits uh, leave. Now, the big banks don't mind deposits leaving because they have too many. It's the smaller banks that are obviously ch- uh, going to be challenged uh, with the flight of deposits. Right. Um, and John was asking, what does it mean for two to three-year duration treasuries? I think you, you made the case that they will follow Fed policy, but it's the 10-year it's the that's going to see the effect. So you see the curve steepening with the longer end higher, right? What, is, what does that mean for stocks? This is not good news for stocks, I'm assuming. Well, it, it, yeah, it, I mean, it's tough to, to argue that 18, now 19 times earnings for the, the S&P is, is uh, an attractive multiple in the face of possibly stickier inflation, more persistent inflation, albeit at lower levels than we're seeing, and um, higher for longer interest rates. So I, I, I agree, it creates uh, a difficult scenario for stocks, particularly the ones that everyone's now piling into because someone said AI in their conference call. If we uh, if we if we think about this and and we think about these probabilities, if the Fed's easing and the shorter durations going lower following the Fed, higher duration, do we see people the all the people sitting in money markets now are they going to have to extend their duration if they're looking for that if they're looking for that yield? No, I still think that. Um, well, yeah, I mean, if the Fed starts to cut, obviously they'll they'll lose some potential yield, but because of the risk to the long end that I gamed out, where you can see a rise in long-term interest rates while the Fed is cutting short-term interest rates, I still think that they'll be more comfortable in in, in short-duration bonds, um, no more than call it two years, three years tops. But a lot of that money, I think, will still stay uh, in money markets where you you know you're talking about T-bills instead. Yeah. Uh, so what do you like here? JB asking, are you still bullish on value and real assets over the next three to five years? Thoughts on TPL? So in the in the next couple of years, um, well, I should say over the next year, because looking past that, you're talking about commodities is, is difficult. So I'm still very bullish on energy. Uh, I think that um, energy prices are still going much higher over the next couple of years. I, I acknowledge the demand side impact uh, of, a, of a slowing economy, a recession, and so on. But uh, I still think that the supply side, uh, uh, you know, over time is still going to be pretty crimped. So still bullish on them, uh, on that sector, and thinking that some of the stocks, particularly the European energy stocks, are very cheap. Um, value stocks are, are just been painful here over the last month as everyone piles into the big cap tech stocks. But, you know, the the there's still a lot of cheap stuff out there. So if you like a name that's trading in a single digit multiple, 
you know, I'm willing to hold that for the next couple of years, assuming that the fundamental thesis is intact. You know, I think that buying the bigger names uh, because of AI, uh, I think that people are trying to sort of relive their high school years, uh, thinking that owning the, the top 10 stocks, um, that that is going to be the, the workable playbook again. And it, it's just so easy just to get back into these names because they'll lead the way. But I need to make an important point here is that the top 10, like call it the top eight stocks, are doing business with the other 492. And look at the Russell 2000, which is near its, it's close to its October lows. So the 2000 stocks in the Russell, the other 492, so you're talking about 2,500 stocks about, these eight companies that everyone's piling into, their customers are the other 2,500. We all breathe the same economic air. So you can't have it on a sustainable basis, eight stocks going up and everything else going down. Either everything else is going to catch up or the eight stocks are going to experience some gravity. And if AI, which is extraordinarily impressive, we all agree, is going to do so much for the economy and productivity and efficiency, well, the 2,500 that are using AI should really see a benefit. But the market's not giving them any benefit. They're just giving benefit to the companies that are going to be sort of creating some picks and shovels. So there, there, there needs to be so so that this 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 is not just a, a technical analyst theoretical debate of okay a few stocks are leading the way and that that typically portends this you know there is a fundamental sort of disconnect that's happening here when like I said twenty five hundred stocks are going down and eight are going up considering that they all do business together. That's, that's an amazing point. Do you have a view of whether the, uh, the they catch up or the big ones come down to earth? I think it's the big ones that come down to earth based on the data that I'm seeing, all the conference calls that I'm listening to, where the common theme was challenging macroeconomic environment. And I'm listening to what companies are saying about how the data came out, how their numbers came out in the back half of March into April, into May. Because to me, there's been a two-part economy this year, January, February, and the first 10 days of March, and then SVB goes down and everything post SVB. You know, I was listening to, you know, well, I was reading the, the transcript of Foot Locker from Friday, and they talked about March slowed down, April bounced a little bit, and then May weakened again. And FedEx talked about January being good, February slowing down a bit, and then March really slowed down. There has been the economy has slowed down post SVB. And to me, it's going to be the big names that catch up to the smaller ones if we're going to be fundamentally consistent here uh, in our analysis. Fantastic stuff. Peter, um, some, some really, really interesting points you brought up. I think um, not a lot of people are talking about it. So it's certainly given us all a lot of food for thought and something to go away and, and think hard about because there are definitely some probabilities that are being ignored, which is always a dangerous thing. Thank you so much. Thanks, Maggie. Love the discussion. It. We got a lot of great questions. We'll be back tomorrow with Greg Weldon um, and we'll pick up some of this and also touch on um, some commodities and currencies as we always do. So be sure to join us for that. Peter, always fantastic to see you. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks, Thanks to all of you. And as always, take care and good luck out there.
What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 